From deep in the heart of the swamp, this is Gator Tales, the official podcast of the Florida Gators. Gator Tales is brought to you by UF Health, the official healthcare provider of the Florida Gators. Welcome to Gator Tales. I'm your host, Adam Schick. Sundays are usually a great time to relax in a quiet and empty Ben Hogerfin Stadium, but this past weekend, the swamp came alive and the Gators hung half a hundred on Eastern Washington. But with six straight SEC games looming, the time for tuning up is over. On today's show, we'll welcome FloridaGators.com senior writers Scott Carter and Chris Harry and the voice of the Gators, Sean Kelly, to discuss the strong showing against the Eagles a great look at the entirety of Florida's roster, another strong outing for Anthony Richardson, the mysterious Missouri Tigers, an incredible UF Hall of Fame class preparing for induction, and underappreciated records in the PAT. Then, to commemorate the first-ever Gator Maid Week, we'll be joined by Savannah Bailey, as the director of the Innovative Initiative talks about its mission and growing impact on the football program. But first, it's time for the Gator Roundtable, presented by Pet Paradise. Pet Paradise is your complete pet health care destination with resort-style day camp, overnight boarding, professional grooming, and compassionate veterinary care from New Day, all located under one roof to serve pet fanatics like you. Book today at PetParadise.com, the official pet care provider of the Florida Gators. Time for this week's roundtable with FloridaGators.com senior writers Scott Carter and Chris Harry and the voice of the Gators, Sean Kelly. Uh, guys, let's dive right into it. So last week there was a lot of uncertainty about whether or not Florida would even be able to play their game against Eastern Washington. Ultimately, it was moved to Sunday. It did go off and it went really well. And I know we talked last week about how much can you learn from a game like that, but certainly a lot of positives for Florida to take regardless of the opponent. I'm curious which ones stood out most in your minds. While it was strange to play on a Sunday afternoon, I, I was impressed by a couple of things. Number one, let's just start with the crowd. I thought there was more Gator fans in attendance at the Swamp than I figured might be with the change of routine and everything else that's going on in the state and, and it being a different day of the week, too. So tip of the cap to the fans for their presence on Sunday afternoon. And I thought that the game being played just in itself was a vehicle to continue to keep people aware of the situation in Southwest Florida, a chance to message out different ways that uh, we can all help them, and in uh, a, a sizable donation made as well. You know, I thought it was uh, a great gesture, uh, gesture move, whatever you want to say about you know making a donation from the the weekly fifty fifty drawing to hurricane relief. Uh, but from there, I thought that it was important for the game to be played for this journey that these Gators are on right now. It came at kind of an ideal time, the end of your first month, chance to get above five hundred again. And to kind of continue applying the grease there for the offense to um, propel itself toward perhaps their toughest stretch of the schedule. Obviously, the benefit of so many different guys getting a chance to be on the field for a, at least one game snap. You know, I, I know Scott and Chris know the number, but 81 Gators playing in the game is awfully impressive. It's a reward for a lot of guys who put in the work, it's a chance to audition in some ways for some players on the fringe of the depth chart. Uh, and, you know, also meaningful reps, I think, for a Florida Gator defense that, you know, we've learned what they are and and probably what they're going to be. And, uh, and can they somehow just develop along the way here? You know, so many of these guys that we're seeing defensively right now, we will see again in the future. And uh, it's not just the future of this season, but in seasons to come too. So you get the win, you do so in dominant fashion. You come out of the thing, as far as I know, relatively healthy, which I think had to be a huge goal for both teams. Uh, and, you know, not to be cliche, but a good time had by all. Yeah, I'll piggyback a little bit off what Sean just said in terms of just getting the game in was big for this team and where they are. And, you know, we've seen these situations in the last decade and you know, they haven't gotten a game in a couple of times. And and when they did, there was some drama in the past. And this was not a lot of drama, thankfully, in this one. It was moved back a day. 
And uh, thankfully, uh, you know, Gainesville kind of skirted the actual hurricane. So, um, but yeah, there's a, just getting it in was number one. And then after that, the football part of it, guys, I mean, I think the key was that this team needed a win because it is starting a stretch here against six straight SEC opponents. And it's going to, that stretch is going to largely determine how this season is viewed uh, with the Gators in their first year under Billy Napier. And, um, you know, it's always hard to make a lot out of these games except uh, just getting guys in, getting some reps. Uh, you know, Billy Napier said it after the game. I mean, that is important. You know, it, it gets overlooked a lot of times. But to get those guys out there, to get them involved, it not only helps them in their development, it also helps in the locker room. You know, guys are – they feel more part of it. It helps just build camaraderie. And and now they're also, I'm sure, looking heavy at that film and say, okay, this guy did this well in this situation. Maybe we can count on him. And maybe not, you know, not this guy. You know, he he wasn't at his best in that, in that particular spot. So they'll learn some things. Um, but the key is always you get a win and you come out of it healthy. Uh, the Gators did that. They had a lot of guys go down during the game. Obviously, the biggest being Anthony Richardson put a little scare into some folks. But, uh, you know, you got to look at Jayla Kitten, who passed his first test in the uniform. And then, of course, Anthony came back in and he's fine and did what he was supposed to do and got the rest the second half. So uh, all things considered, I'd say it worked out pretty well for Florida. Billy Napier said after the game that sometime the opponent doesn't matter. Um, I don't think that that wasn't at all meant as a diss to uh, Eastern Washington. Um, I think if my number is right, I think 17 guys either ran the ball or caught the ball. And to Scott's point, yes, that does matter in the locker room after a game as somebody who in high school – there were times I didn't play as much as I want to. I know if I got in a game and did something in a game, I was happy after the game uh, in a in a in in a route when the team won, and certainly that's something uh, camaraderie that uh, they can they can build on. And also to Scott's point, I mean, we now know that there is a quarterback behind Anthony Richardson. Uh, Jalen Kitten looked pretty good. I know the, uh, like sometimes the opponent doesn't match, so you got to trot the second string quarterback out there. And he was put in in duress. I mean, the, the game, the game, you know, was what was it, fourteen to three when he got in the game? Um, first play, rolls to his right, and hits a hits hits a really nice pass. He did what he was supposed to do uh, when asked to do that. And and you know, Jalen Kitna uh, certainly uh, had a lot had a lot to be happy about. And I imagine and Billy Napier had a lot to be happy about after the game as well. Yeah, and if I might add, you know, I think that another thing that I'll take away. There's a couple things. Before I get to the negative part, the emphasis that we saw heading toward the Tennessee game, that things had to be better between quarterback and wide receiver collectively. Um, we're seeing the fruits of that emphasis a little bit. We saw it against Tennessee. I think that even more so against Eastern Washington, they have more of a rhythm in playing together. The numbers bear that out. Um, and, and look, to the kid in the point, you see now why the – the twos and sometimes the threes get as many reps as they do in practice because yes, Kitna did look comfortable and did so in one particular instance to Caleb Douglas, a, a receiver who's been on the fringe, obviously as well, that they, they were on the same page on a, on a chunk play. Speaking of chunk plays, just a couple of negatives. This is a Florida defense now that's yielded 49 pass plays of 20 yards or more. Wow. And we saw a little bit of that again, against Eastern Washington, uh, and it's an also another team. And, again, I throw out some of these numbers because 81 Gators played, but it's another team that put up 400-plus total offense on you as well. So, who oh boy, when you look at the schedule coming up, some of that has to come down a bit. Uh, it's just it's hard to get off the field when you're giving up chunk plays such as that or when a team is able to run as many plays now as several of their opponents have done. I think they were north of 80. Eastern Washington was. And again, the numbers are skewed. You have to take out some of this in your observations, your takeaway from Eastern Washington. But those are numbers that spell problems against better opponents here, especially over the next five weeks. So I didn't mean to end on a down note, guys, but I do think it's worth pointing out as we make the turn. Yeah. yeah I mean, you said like this, they're about to head into maybe the most difficult stretch of the season. Think about a statement like that after they've played three ranked teams already. 
you know, uh, 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 two top 10 teams, right. Or, or, or number seven at the time, number 11 at the time, number 20 at the time. Uh, yeah. So this, this, and also to his point, the defense right now is ranked 108th in the country and 12th in the sec and at 421.4 yards a game. So, um, that is something that certainly bears watching the next few weeks. One thing that Billy Napier noted that, that impressed him that I think is, is pretty notable, um, it would have been really easy for a, a noon game on a Sunday, weird circumstances. Um, coming out flat would have been understandable. And frankly, it's something that you, you, know, you often see. Uh, you can go last year to the, the Samford game, which ended up being a shootout in the 60s, where, again, Florida just did not show up with the level of, of intensity and focus they did. When we're talking about a young team and a young program in, in this build, I think that is pretty significant to see that they came out and they were ready to go, and they immediately drove down the field. It didn't take them a while to wake up. The focus was maybe the biggest thing that I would take away from this because there's going to be a lot of games where, you know, it's not prime time in the swamp, but you still have to bring it. And they were able to do that right from the opening whistle, especially on offense. Yeah, you know, one play, one play scoring drive to start your offensive day. Um, and I'm kicking myself here because uh, I'm, I'm big on – giving credit where credit is due, there is a writer who's done the research that the uh, touchdown pass on the first play from scrimmage has only happened two times now in the last, like, 30-some years. And one of the guys who's done it was sitting right next to me in the booth, Shane Matthews, I think, hit Willie Jackson on a, uh, on a touchdown pass in the first play of a game uh, during their run together. Sure enough, Willie's son Khalil gets his first reception uh, this past weekend as well. But yeah, no, I thought it was a, an electric way to start. It made a statement in that sense. But again, you know, it, it goes to the fact that this team has been in every game thus far, basically. Uh, there is a work ethic to this group that I think is now worth noting with some meat behind it because you're five games in. And that work ethic does go in this blowout situation too, to add them to your point. You did take care of business. You were ready to go to work on an odd day during a distracting week uh, at an early time. So I, I, I did like that, and I think that I think that tells us something about what Billy Napier is doing with this group. Yeah, and that's something that Billy Napier has uh, he recognized that earlier. Uh, I remember him telling us uh, when he took the job, one of the coaches on the previous staff who he knew well. Said, look, I, you know, <laughs> this team's got some holes, but one thing you're not going to have to worry about is they really fight. I, I've never been around a program where the players really show up and fight as much. And and he's kind of reiterated that message in the last few weeks. And, you know, what does that look like? That looks like a noon game against a FCS opponent that flew all the way across the country. Uh, for a Sunday game, you go out there and take care of business. So, that is a positive that he has in this group, um, and you need that because, you know, all the stuff that we just mentioned, those 49 plays of 20 yards or more in the passing game, 108th-ranked defense, uh, that's not where they want to be. So if you don't have some fight, guys, you're going to get your ass kicked a little bit. And, uh, you know, luckily for them, they have been in every game, and they're going to have to continue that way, but he's also hoping that they get some better production and some playmaking because. If you stay 108th in defense, uh, this final, this six-game stretch we're talking about, it's probably not going to go that well. Uh, that Eastern Washington team was ranked 121st in defense in FCS also. So there weren't a lot of Cooper Cups on that Eastern Washington team. Let's <laughs> let's be honest. I think that's a good transition point, too, to uh, teams that are, are maybe better or worse than you think they are. Let's talk about Missouri and at least the perception of Missouri. A week ago, you're thinking, oh, it's you know it's it's Mizzou. They're coming in. They're not very good. They they pretty badly embarrassed themselves with the way they blew that Auburn game last week. Uh, but then they almost beat Georgia and pretty much I, I don't know if I'd say dominated the game, but they were pretty much in control of that game for long stretches until the fourth quarter um, against what is I think is fair to say the most talented team in the country in Georgia. And then all of a sudden you look at this game, you're like, wait, this is this is a different game than, than you probably thought it was going to be. What, what is our take on Mizzou as they come in here and the challenges that they're going to present as I imagine a more confident team than they probably were before Saturday? Uh, 
the mysterious Missouri Tigers because that's exactly <laughs> what they are and have been for some time. I watched the game against Georgia really from from kick to final uh, horn. And what stuck out to me is that they were obviously juiced up to play the top team in the country, the biggest crowd at Faroe Field in the Drinkowitz era. Uh, but that defense, it flies. And they're fast. And, man, they hit the snot out of the Bulldogs. And I thought to myself, if they come into the swamp and hit like that, the Gators are going to have their hands full. Uh, Blake Baker is the D.C. there. And, and he just blitzed the daylights out of George and Stetson Bennett. And obviously that's what was this, the takeaway from the first half. The better team wins the game. But Missouri was awfully competitive. They've got a couple of weapons that I think fans should be aware of. Dominic Lovett is a wide receiver who's really come on here. Luther Burden, who's been up and down for some mysterious reason. We go back to that mystery word. Um, the East St. Louis product is a weapon. They can use him, much like Napier did with Pearsall last weekend, and that he can make plays, whether it's as, as a receiver or on the ground as some kind of a wild card in, in, in that sense. But this is one of those teams, guys, and, and, I'll, and I'll yield to Scott and Chris on this. This is one of those teams that, Maybe you thought all along Florida should have the upper hands in the 10 or so meetings that they've had in SEC play, but it's split even 5-5. And the Tigers won last year in overtime, and we know what that meant to the Mullen era. And so <laughs> this is one of those games where I'm not so sure I know how this is going to go. The line is 10, 10 and a half on some boards. I get that the Gators should get something there for being the home team, but to be a double-digit favorite when Florida's 0-2 in the conference, Missouri's 0-2 in the conference, uh, it, it, this is a hard read for me in a, in a lot of ways. Um, you know, and their quarterback is, is a tough kid out of the St. Louis area, but yet he doesn't light the world on fire and sometimes makes some bad decisions. Um, so in a lot of ways, uh, I'm going to throw my hands up a little bit on this topic and just kind of get ready for what I think is probably going to be a a scary but maybe good game for the Gators this weekend. Well, I think it's a real good measuring stick for Anthony Richardson. I mean, we praised him the last two weeks, and just to to what excuse me, Sean was saying, I mean, he's going to be tested because I, I I got a feeling. First of all, he, he, they just out athleted uh, uh, Eastern Washington this past weekend. The week before, I, I think I made the point last week. Tennessee, with a lot of its man coverage, uh, really helped Anthony Richardson out. I, I would imagine this defense is going to try to be a little more aggressive in blitzing Anthony Richardson and and maybe uh, uh, trying to confuse him more with some uh, with some zones in the on the back end. Yeah, guys. I mean, this game. It, it, I'm like Sean. It, it is one of those that you'd look at and <laughs> they could go either way. But that's really how this rivalry has gone in the in the ten years they've been. Uh, you know, SEC. East foes. Uh, ever since Missouri came in, uh, it's been a tricky game for Florida and none more probably than last year. I mean, as far as impact, I mean, you just knew once you got back from uh, Columbia last year, you knew what was going to happen the next day with Dan Mullen. And sure enough, it did. And it also was the game that really ended for all intents and purposes, Will Muschamp's time at Florida. Yeah. It's the 14 game. Uh, at the Swamp, Missouri wins 42-13, and Gators had a lot more yards but a lot less points, and Missouri scored about every way imaginable uh, that night. It doomed it doomed the Muschamp era. So Florida fans, they don't look at Missouri like Vanderbilt or Kentucky uh, of old. Uh, they know that this game's a tricky one, and, and you know, Missouri, I don't know if they have, like, you know, they don't have maybe like a Drew Locke. I don't think a Brady Cooks in that category, but they just, they've always got guys who just make plays. And one guy I'll be keeping an eye on is a guy that Billy Napier wish he had uh, that left for the Gators to go to Missouri was Tyrone Hopper. I think he would probably have solved uh, some of their woes on defense, at least at linebacker. You know, he's a guy who transferred after last season, ended up Missouri starting. Had uh, seven tackles the other night against Georgia. Instant starter out there for the Tigers. Um, so there's going to be some challenges there for Anthony Richardson and company. Isn't it interesting, though, as Scott brings up Hopper, who, by the way, has like eight tackles for loss. He was everywhere on the field this past Saturday night. 
that we used to talk about this all the time in pro sports when a guy or, 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 or girl would, would go up against their former team because they were traded or whatever. You know, we never talked about that really in college athletics. Now we do. And, you know, and Hopper going up against his old team. Scott's right. This is a guy that you better keep your eye on. You know, he, I don't care what they say, whether it's the pro level or the cop, they're going to be extra juiced when they play their old team. That's just, it's human nature. So Hopper's going to be, pardon me, hopped up for this matchup. Like Diabate was it for Utah when they came to town, I would imagine. Yeah. Exactly. Exactly. Speaking of amped up, uh, the Mr. Two-Bits, the celebrity Mr. Two-Bits is, uh, is part of getting the crowd going. Chandler Parsons is coming back to the Swamp. Uh, I know a lot of people are excited to see that. He's also going to be there to go into the UF Hall of Fame, which is all rolled into this weekend. Uh, talk about CP returning and overall this this Hall of Fame class that's going to be inducted. Obviously, Gator great. I mean, he's still the 15th all-time scorer in school history. Uh, I believe he's in the top six also in all-time rebounds and minutes played. And maybe the, his biggest achievement, he's the first, this is really a remarkable stat. He's the, he was the first SEC player of the year in Florida basketball history. And I mean, you look at his stats from that season. I, I'm, I'm going off the top of my head here because I, I did more of a, a overlook of his, of his career. I think it was just over 11 points a game, uh, six rebounds and maybe almost four assists per game um uh that year but that was for a team that 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 won the sec championship one of those classic billy donovan teams where uh you know if people forget billy donovan never i don't think ever had a guy who scored 18, 18 points a game um during during his time here it was all it was all about uh distributing the ball and moving it around and what have you but Chandler parsons was he loved being a gator he grew up a gator um had a great high school career obviously down there uh in winter park uh, alongside Nicolaitis, great great NBA career. Hell, I mean, if it wasn't for a car accident, I think he'd still be playing. But I think he's doing okay for himself. He's he's going to get married. He's going to Cabo, guys. Uh, a week after he does Mister Two Bits, and a week after he gets inducted into Hall of Fame, going to get married in Cabo. He has a daughter who's going to be one by the name of Rocket Rose, which I assume is a is a tribute to his time with the Houston Rockets. I mean, the guy. I mean, he averaged. Uh, you know, almost 13 points, almost six rebounds, and almost and over four assists, or almost four assists for his career in the NBA. So this is a really uh, uh, he was a productive player when he was here. It's a productive player in the NBA. His bank account is productive. He had a 64 million dollar contract, his last contract, I believe. So uh, he'll be into it. Uh, this Mister Two Bits. This is a pretty good Mister Two Bits uh, run uh, we've had this year with. Reed L. Anthony with Mouse Holloway. We got a pretty good one for next week, too. So uh, we'll, we'll may- maybe talk about that uh, a little bit later on. In addition to Chandler Parsons, maybe uh, one of the biggest names on the list, tell us who else is going in the Hall of Fame and uh, some of their accolades. Well, yeah, I mean, you have Jeff Demps, who was both a track and football star, one of the great uh, you know, return men and tailbacks we've had come through here in a long time. Connor Dwyer, gold medalist at the Olympics. Joe Hayden, Pro Bowler, uh, you know, had a, a great career with the Pittsburgh Steelers. Michelle Moultrie, who you're familiar with, obviously, Adam, from mm-hmm. a great career uh, with Tim Walton, was really on the ground floor of some of those uh, great teams that helped uh, produce that program or whatever. Christian Taylor, another gold medalist. Uh, and my, Mike Zanino, uh, currently with the Tampa Bay Rays. I think he's injured right now. But uh, he was uh, I think he won the Golden Spikes Award, if I'm not mistaken, for uh, for his time here. It was the third overall pick in the draft. And finally, Jeremy Foley's going to get in as an honorary letter winner, which is a much uh, uh, much deserved, obviously, uh, award for him uh, for his 25 years here at AD, having just had that uh, grand atrium there in the Heavener um, Training Center uh, named for him. So it's a good class, and Chandler Parsons right in the middle of it. So a very impressive Hall of Fame class, no question about it. Look forward to seeing all of them enshrined this weekend. Uh, let's turn our attention now to the PAT. Let's turn our attention now to the PAT. And uh, I, I don't know if you guys have heard, uh, but Aaron Judge has been in pursuit of Roger Maris's American League home run record. We've really sort of, we, we've recalibrated this thing to make this as uh, as big as possible, even though it's... I think 61 is now, I think, fifth or sixth in terms of the most home runs sitting here. But I get it. 
the steroid era. It's also a thing. It's the American League record. We've done a lot uh, to make this a thing. Arguably, maybe too much of a thing, which got me thinking about records that don't get as much attention. I think it's probably fair to say the home run record is maybe the most hyped in sports. I don't know if it's the most important, but it's the one that gets the most attention. Um, but certainly there's lots of other records that, that don't get their due. So I'm curious for you guys, what records, what numbers impress you that are not related to Aaron Judge's pursuit of 62? Well, I'll just, I'll start with a couple that have always kind of caught my attention over the years because I, I wasn't around at the time when I look at them in the record books. I'm thinking, damn, how'd that guy do that? First one's probably Hack Wilson's 191 RBI season, which no one, I think, I don't have it in front of me. I think it was 1929, 30, somewhere around there. But um, I think the closest anyone has gotten to that since then was Manny Ramirez at 165 back when he was with the Cleveland Indians. So, I mean, that's one that, as always, 191 RBIs in a season, man. That's one RBI game plus what? 30 more. So and what, what year to, what year was that? Uh 1930, I think it was. He was with the Cubs. Wow. So that's and you have to that's not even a 162 game schedule back then. So that's even more 154, yeah. Mm-hmm. That's even more, yeah. yeah. So that one has always stuck out. And then the other one, man, it, these are both individual records. I, I mean, I can't imagine like a guy scoring 50 points a game like Wilt Chamberlain in the 1962, I think it was, 61, 62. He averaged 50 points a game. I mean, you know, as good as Jordan and LeBron is, uh, they've never sniffed that. Of course, it's a different era, and Wilt was uh, kind of like a giraffe playing against uh, uh, poodles or whatever. Adam. Adam. Yeah. But I mean, he, uh, he was just to do that. And, of course, this 100-point game that year. So, I mean, those are two that they don't really get the uh, uh, talked about because no one's ever approached them and probably mm-hmm. no one ever will approach them. Uh, so you just don't hear about them uh, much in today's world, but still standing after all these decades, man. If I may start by taking umbrage with Adam's dismissal of the 61 home runs in a single season campaign, um, it is the American League record. And that still means something in a sport where the leagues are dif- differentiated, even with interleague play. Um, and the universal and yes, DH, the leagues are the same. It, it's, it's the Eastern Conference, the Western Conference. There's no difference now. Well, in that sense, yes. But look, how many men have passed 61 home runs in a season? It's less than five. It's it's three. There you go. Mm-hmm. And so, and while this week he, he may or may not get the 62, the accomplishment remains in pursuit for most of the season of a possible triple crown as well, which I think is also of no, the one thing that is interesting, and I don't know if we brought it up on this podcast yet or not, but I did read something, and I hope I'm not off by too much. But as of just a week or two ago, Roger Maris faced 101 different pitchers, I think, in his pursuit of 61. Aaron Judge has now done this against 250 different pitchers wow. this season. Um, so we can either argue that against uh, multiple looks, or we can say that baseball's changed so much that we specialized in the sense that uh, the record is not even able to be compared because the eras are so different. And that's where we get into all this is that we have records from different eras. Um, you know, I, I don't know if it's overlooked as much, and I haven't thought about this in great detail, much like Scott Carter did, but. You know, I think that sometimes, and we just had the passing of this great man, but let's not forget that Mr. Russell had, I think, 11 championships at the NBA level. And we seem to always want to celebrate Jordan's era in the 90s or LeBron and Steph Curry here now in the more modern era of the NBA. But 11? I mean, that that is even that is even more lofty perhaps than even the great John Wooden and what he was able to do at UCLA. So seemingly I'm counter to this argument in the fact that every time I turn around, we have some new record for something. And at times I find them to be insignificant. Winning is the ultimate goal. And so winning championships is to me, maybe, maybe not as celebrated as it should be. You ever heard of Ron Hunt? I've not heard of Ron Hunt. 
How about getting hit by a pitch 50 times in a season? That is unbelievable. In my, now, I know Don Baylor broke the record down, but at one time Ron Hunt had the hit-by-pitch uh, record, a career record or whatever. I guess it was broken a couple times since. He got hit 50 times in one season, including three times in one game. Uh, I mean, talk about taking a bullet. He was, he was saying, you know, say he, I think his quote was, some people give their life to science. I gave my body to baseball. <laughs> and uh, that's, that's, the, that's the kind – I mean, I just decided to look a little – I looked up the most penalized player in a season in an NFL was, was a guy by the name of Brandon Browner from the Saints who got flagged 24 times uh, in, in, in a season. Uh, I mean, it, it, th- those are the kind of things I looked that don't get enough attention – Go a little, go a little different. I mean, everyone can talk about home runs and touchdown passes and hockey goals and stuff like that. But uh, you know, get a little, you know, let's get in the weeds a little bit with this thing. I believe that the Mets, I think, broke the single season record for team hit by pitches uh, this year. Fun fact: I in high school was a high school pitcher and played against a team coached by Ron Hunt. <laughs> who taught all of his kids how to get hit by a pitch, and it drove me nuts as an opposing pitcher. <laughs> what's, what's the science? How, that's how do they teach that's it? That's great. Uh, how to crowd the plate lean and lean in. Okay. Yeah. yeah. Um, uh, by the way, I'm a little surprised that in light of the last episode's conversation, uh, that no one mentioned the record for hot dogs being eaten good point actually mm. i mean I, it's 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 so irrelevant to me that i wouldn't even want to bring it up <laughs> competitive eating has now been referenced in two episodes which is two more than i think any of us want it to um before it comes up again we'll, we'll have to put a stop to this but again big game in the swamp this weekend it's homecoming uh it's florida it's missouri the proverbial thorn in the gators side it's going to be a nooner so get going early and make sure to follow these guys at FloridaGators.com and on Twitter. And, of course, listen to the call that Sean will have of the game as well. Guys, thank you. We'll talk to you next week. Thank you. Happy homecoming, everybody. When Billy Napier came to Florida and spoke about the goal of not only winning games, but also developing athletes off the field and preparing them for life beyond football, some observers probably thought it was typical coach speak without much behind it. But for anyone who doubted his resolve to follow through on that promise, look no further than Gator Made, the expansive program being implemented to ensure that Florida football players are built for long-term success. With Coach Napier declaring the lead-up to homecoming Gator Made Week, we spent some time with the director of the program, Savannah Bailey, to discuss how it's going and where it's headed next. So traditionally, there's always a student athlete development department, which gets to service all student athletes at an institution. We have one in the Hawkins Center. They're stellar. They're awesome staff. But when you look at how large a football roster is, it's almost the amount of several other teams combined. Mm -hmm. Um, So what does it look like to deal with that schedule, those personal needs, and to get to know each one of those players one-on-one? Um, so coach Napier wanted to make this a priority when he first got hired. In fact, during his COVID time, when he was still at the university of Louisiana was doing a lot of research as to like, what makes the best, the best. And, uh, one of the programs that he looked into, you know, a place that he had formerly worked was Clemson university looking through Clemson found the Paw journey program, which I had been a part of for the past six years up until coming here and, and how that helps develop young men. When you have a more developed young man, what does that lead into? What are those opportunities and experiences that you can offer um, that just create a better culture and a better football program? Hmm. And, you know, spending six years developing something like that, I'm sure you had an idea of of the infrastructure it would take. Um, Since we last spoke, can you just talk about the the growth of GatorMade and the process of further building it out and and getting additional buy-in for it? Yeah. So the first year of Gator Made still hasn't even been a whole calendar year, but I think mm-hmm. it, it's been a year first for a lot of things for this program, not just Gator Made, but Florida football in general. Um, so in this year first, you know, we're able to take our first business trip uh, to Atlanta. We're able to take our first abroad service trip to Greece. We're able to do some of those actual player led something that they've asked for for us to do and to come in and initiate while still keeping some of those key pieces that they've used as a resource in the past. That's surreal 
benefit on top of just not only having a new staff come in, but retaining Diane LeBon and Vernell Brown Jr. You've got people that are experts in our players and have been for the past few years. They've seen it, they've done it, they know it, and they can also help find those, those missing pieces for us to come in and plug in. So in our first year, it was a lot of observing for me of saying, okay, well, what does our team need and how can we implement those things where I also have the benefit of, of being surrounded by excellent people that also know what our team needs. And I get a little jump start on that instead of just coming in brand new. Right. So the reason that we're talking today is this is Gator Maid Week. So it is the inaugural Gator Maid Week. What, what is Gator Maid Week? Why was this an important initiative for, for Coach Napier and the program? Yeah. So when you think of Gator Maid Week, it's not that we're doing, you know, programming every single day for the guys or anything like that. This is much more for the public to consume, right? This is for every potential donor, potential corporate partner, potential future employer of our guys. What is it that they need to know that best equips our guys, that helps them get plugged into the program and really explains like, why is this a, a priority for Coach Napier and for this program? So for us, it's much more of the, the outreach to the public that serves in so many ways. It's one thing to be a fan of our young men when they're in helmets and pads. Can you be, can you be a fan of them when they're in your boardroom or going through a job process interview or any of those other things? Can you be just as supportive or maybe even help provide some of those opportunities for their growth? Well, and that's one of the things that I think is, is interesting about the program that I didn't totally understand until we spoke six months ago. In my mind, I heard this as, oh, this is about development. This is about preparing them to interview better at the combine, or I was just thinking about this from a football perspective. Mm -hmm. For some guys, it's about what they do beyond football, uh, and whether that's the end of the football journey is in college or it's after an NFL career, this is much more about, about personal professional development as opposed to just football or thinking of it through that lens, correct? Right. And so it's something that we view football as a tool, right? It's not there to to just exist for some part of your life. But if you use it correctly, football is a tool that can empower you for the rest of your life. Football and your, your status of being on this team might open some doors for you, but what's gonna keep you in those doors and maybe help you go up the steps a little bit faster, right? What are those extra mm -hmm. things that while football remains part of maybe who you are, it's not, or part of what you do, it's not who you are. Um, so how do we pull out those extra things that might contribute to football, but isn't just, encompassing of one sport and one environment of their life. Mm -hmm. You know, when it comes to programs like this, I think fans a lot of times think, okay, that's great. Well, how is it helping us in recruiting, right? Everything is all about, well, how is it helping the team? So uh, to what degree have you seen this really be impactful when it comes to speaking to recruits, talking to families mm -hmm. and, and helping them understand all of the things you're going to provide for them? Well, first, I do want to kind of put the, the disclaimer out there that while a lot of programs might want to institute something like this, they use it for a recruiting purpose, right? So they might have someone that's similar to, to myself or anyone on my staff, and they're really there for, hey, go talk to the families and tell them what, we, what we're going to do, but do they actually do those things? Do so they fulfill the promises that they've made to those families? Mm -hmm. So first and foremost, I want to make sure that like, while recruiting is a part of what we get to do, our current guys and our alumni, our Swamp alumni, are our main priorities. Um, so when it comes to recruiting, we have a small piece in it. So we might, you know, meet one-on-one -on -one with some families, uh, be present at dinners and socials and things like that, because it is a part of the program. It's a part of the culture, right? In the same way that when they meet with coach, they're not just talking about playing time and, you know, what does it look like to come here, but what does it look like to be a Gator for the rest of your life? And mm -hmm. so of course, Gator made naturally fits in that conversation. Um, so when we spend time one-on-one -on -one with these families and these recruits, we're really kind of going, okay, what can I teach you in this 30 minute block that we have together? My mindset isn't just let me sell you on Florida. It's let me get you to invest in yourself and show you that, you know, if I can do this in 30 minutes, give me the four years to help develop you and imagine where we're going to be, what different professional, what different person, what different man you're going to be. Um, so I always try to make it as engaging as possible and, and really question the guys of like, okay, well, who are you? Who do you want to be? What do you want out of life? And you best believe that all those parents that are sitting in their room is like, no one's ever talked to my kid like that. Mm -hmm. On these visits, it's a it's a selling pitch. They're talking about themselves and what they have to offer. But I just turn it much more into a dialogue. Let mm -hmm. me learn about you so that I can properly serve you. One of the things you offer is help with networking and the importance of that. 
And I actually, as someone who who sat through a seminar last week at work all about networking um, with a 190 slide PowerPoint that was maybe a little bit excessive, how do you teach network? I think that's one of the hardest things to teach, especially young people who have a certain idea of, you know, how they're supposed to engage. And I don't know, I'm, I'm just curious how, how you've, you've specifically handled that part of the program. Yeah. So when I think of networking as a skill and pretty much with anything that I like to teach, it's, it's educate, equip and empower. So if you educate them on the like do's and don'ts, and then you equip them with the opportunity to, okay, let's try it out. Me and you, you know, let's mm-hmm. test out some bugs. And then the empowerment piece of you go out and then you go do it. I might be in the corner helping you out as you might need it, but you go do it. (laughs) That applied leadership is such a key piece to how you actually teach networking, right? Because if you just do a PowerPoint, if you just do a presentation, that's going to feel really dry. So Mm. I try to get people up and out of their seats doing something and doing, like I said, those practical professionalism pieces. So what does it look like for me to, you know, walk on the sideline and say, Hey, see that guy behind me, go introduce yourself or whatever, you know, in a pregame warm up or something. And, mm-hmm. you know, those small things that just kind of make sense of how do we make sure that you're always communicating your best self to these folks that could be really important to you in your future. Mm-hmm. As part of that, that 190 slide presentation, the front end of that was a simulation uh, where I was at, I was one of the secret actors uh, and my job was to give out as many business cards as possible. And then during the presentation, there was the whole thing was don't be that guy. I was the I was that guy. Don't be that guy. Yeah. Uh, I'm curious just for people who want some practical tips as well. What is your number one do and don't of networking when you help teach it to the guys? Yeah. So for me, um, I think it's walking with no assumptions of people. Um, you know, especially being a woman in sports in this space, most people, you know, walk right past me and automatically shake Vernell's hand, right? They might know mm-hmm. him. He's the former player. And while he definitely deserves that respect, it's also one of those, did you know that that's one of the other gatekeepers to your success here, mm-hmm. right? So don't assume any role, any position about anybody based on physical appearance or anything like that. Make sure that you treat everyone the same. Give them all the same firm handshake. Make sure that you're introducing yourself, not assuming that they know anything about you. You know, you don't have to lead with, oh, I play football and that's it. You know, what is your actual elevator pitch look like? What does it look like to gently exit a conversation that maybe isn't going as productively as you want? Right. <laughs> that's, that's the that's toughest a, part, right? <laughs> that's a good skill to have. You know, how do you maintain that professionalism while still excusing yourself? Maybe it's from a time crunch or anything else. But um, I mean, my, my big thing is don't assume anyone knows you or you know anybody else until you actually strike up that relationship. Yeah. See, people are learning stuff this week. You don't normally get this on Gator Tales. We're doing we're doing something <laughs> a little bit different this week here. Hey, if I um, can make whole Gator Nation just that much right. better, I'm about it. One percent better every day. That's right. That's right. Um, you mentioned earlier that the trips that you guys take, and there's business trips. There's so we talked about last time the business trip you took to Atlanta. Since then, you've taken an international trip. So can you tell us a little bit about that and what was the goal? So I had the opportunity to take 16 of our scholar athletes, 10 of our football guys, and six women athletes from all different sports uh, on an abroad service trip to Greece. So we mm. had meetings kind of beforehand talking about um, you know Greece as a history, as an economy, as a culture, just really kind of having that dialogue and discussion. What does it look like to serve another place? So while we were there, um, the whole plan was to kind of help provide shelter, food, clothing, anything that we could think of to do um, as they have this kind of state of emergency as folks are maybe never having to lose things, now having nothing or now being separated from their families. So we did a lot of also kind of psychological training on the front end to say, okay, what does it look like to, to go and serve people when they might be at their lowest? Right. How do you make sure that you're not taking those things personal and you're really applying what it what altruism looks like and what uh, servant leadership looks like? So once once we got there, I mean, plans went awry as they typically do <laughs> <laughs> whenever you travel. Right. You know, it was a, our flights got delayed. Our service dates got changed. Um, we had been on a very, very long flight. So first thing we did was take a bike ride through the city of Athens to get everyone's legs moving. Yeah. And even that was an eye opening experience of just kind of what was going on in the city at the time. You know, who's around? What does everyone look like? What does everyone sound like? How are they perceiving us? All those kind of things, you know, when you roll with a pack of giant men, (laughs) you you attract a lot of attention. Yeah. Um, Yeah. But I think throughout throughout the week, you know, more and more people became more and more comfortable with our guys. We primarily served a lot of foster care facilities and we served meals one morning. I mean, just whatever they could do. 
to be actively engaged with the population and really showing them that needs exist everywhere. We didn't have to go all the way across the world to go do those things. Right. However, they need it just as much as maybe the people in our own hometowns and backyards and here in Gainesville. So how do you increase that awareness and increase that civic engagement, not just when it seems cool or culturally different, but in your everyday life? I imagine the answer to this might lie in, in some of the people that went on that trip with you. But in terms of the impact you've seen this have on individuals, I mean, it's one thing to say, you know, we're doing this program and there's over 100 people it's impacting. But when you bring it down to a level of, well, I saw it have this particular effect on this individual, I'm sure that's where it gets, you know, most most effective and most impactful for you. Right. So one of those like big examples for me, and I've used it before, is in Ventral Miller, right? So he's an old head of the team. Uh, he's a Florida boy, goes to Florida, is very close to his family, and then says, you know, hey, I guess I'm going to go do this thing out of the country. Yeah. And he's someone that we had to go get his passport, do all of those kind of pieces to wow. make it even more of a building opportunity, right? So he goes, he's kind of anxious to begin with saying like, I've never really been that far away from home for that long. And by the end of the week, he was like, that flew by like nothing. I'm ready to go back. And wow. so just knowing that he has that world experience now, even as that translates into his professional life. So let's say that he gets drafted by an NFL team. Now we have more confidence in him to say, like, let's say it's not in Florida, that it's somewhere else that he can now be put in another environment, adapt quickly, make those friendships and relationships and really be be the person that he always is, right? That's such a an energy impactor of this building. And to watch him go out and do that in other spaces not related to football is awesome. We had the Atlanta business trip. We had the service project in Greece. What is next? What What's officially on the docket? And what are you thinking about for the future trying to make a reality? Yeah. So when you think of what's on the docket in season, our staff looks really different. It totally switches to like mental health and check-ins and much less in the programming space, just being aware of their time and their needs and their demands. So we'll do some of that. We'll do some uh, NFL professional development, get some career readiness for guys that are about to graduate in December um, and excited for them for that. But then when it comes back time to spring and summer semesters, we're looking at, you know, not going to Atlanta this year, but going to New York City and engaging wow. with those businesses and those um, Gator Nation alumni up there. Right. Then we're also looking at our abroad service trip for next year. It's my goal to say, you know, let's say someone goes on this trip every year that they're here. I want them to have traveled across the world. So mm -hmm. we're going to Cape Town, South Africa. Right. Uh, so pretty Very exciting cool. there just to, to, again, experience a different culture, a different place, different people and different service projects. Right. I want something to click for each person that engages in something that they do with Gator Made. So those are the two big ones. There's plenty more things planned. Uh, I won't give them away this, just just yet. Maybe no in another spoilers. six months, you'll you'll hit another good update where I share some more good news. But yeah. all of it's good news over here, to be quite honest. I'm sure people are also wondering, uh, does this touch NIL? The answer is yes. Can you tell us about NIL's role within GatorMade as it is now and what it looks like in the future as well? Yep. So that's another uh, planning priority from head coach Billy Napier. He said, you know what, I want to be one of the first places to have an NIL director. And that's what we have in Marcus Castro Walker, who's in the Gator Made program. Most people assume that that's separate. But when you look at it as a professional development opportunity, as a life skill opportunity, there's a lot of things that go into NIL. It's not just making money. It's how do you manage that money? It's your financial literacy. It's your marketability, your public speaking. All of those things tie into your NIL success. So it's only natural for it to fit into GatorMade. And for us to have the professional in Marcus Castro Walker is just phenomenal. We're not only the first to have that position, but I think we're doing one of the best as it comes to developing our guys and really making sure that they have what they need to be successful in their own business ventures. So a very public assumption is that this is kind of ruining college sports, but I think it's just making a more sophisticated athlete. You're talking about an increased business acumen, them understanding and taking more responsibility for, for things that maybe they hadn't in the past. Right now, they're not just getting financial literacy because it's important, but because it's real and in front of them, right? You right. have more active engagement into those things. They care more about their personal brands and the brand of the school more than ever, um, which is a, a huge plus for Florida, right? Again, everything school, you get attached to the Florida Gators, Gatorade, Jordan brand, all of these things that kind of encompass what it looks like to be a Gator. Um, 
And now they get to add their own personal brand into that and add value in both ways. For for people that, that are hearing about the program, maybe for the first time, or they're aware of it, but they haven't been able to get involved, how can fans, alumni, et cetera, how can they support GatorMade and, and the, the journey that you are taking them on? Yeah. So one of the easiest ways you can email us um, at GatorMade at Gators ufl.edu if you have questions about the program if you want to get involved we're always looking for corporate partners to host internships always looking for great mentors looking for great alumni that want to give back in some way we're not just talking about resources uh you know money but i'm looking for time and talent and those things that hey let me share what i wish i knew let me share the things that i've been able to develop uh, gator nation is huge and and i want to take advantage of that as one of our biggest resources Right. It's it's yeah. fun to be the everything school where we're a top five academic institution. We have great athletics. We have a great alumni base. Let's go ahead and tap into all of those things now and forever to make sure our guys have as much experience as possible. You mentioned there's a lot of ways people can support the program that uh, that don't involve financial investments, but those are still important. And I know that you got a significant one recently to to really help jumpstart the cause. Yeah, so GatorMade has been really proactive in establishing an endowment. We want to make sure that those big initiatives that that we're looking forward to doing get to persist no matter what, no matter if I'm here, head coach is here, whoever's here, that our guys are still getting the most out of their college experience. And we have to do a huge shout out and a big thank you to Mike Ricketts. We're talking about a Swamp alumni who said, what does it look like to give back in all areas? He serves as a mentor to our young men, to other Swamp alumni and help establish that endowment for GatorMade through a $2 million gift. Wow. And when we're talking about an incredibly impactful thing for the rest of their lives and for the livelihood of this program, we can't say thank you enough. Well, Savannah, thanks again for joining us and giving us more information about GatorMade. Uh, congratulations on the first GatorMade week, and we wish you a lot of success as you keep building out the program. Yeah, and no, thank you for having us. And honestly, thank you to everyone that supported the program from UAA administration, head coach, donors, everybody. We can't thank you guys enough for your support. And that's going to do it for this week's show. If you haven't already done so, please subscribe to Gator Tales wherever you get your podcasts and leave us a review to help us continue to grow. Be sure to keep track of all of the orange and blue action by visiting FloridaGators.com, then come back here every Thursday during the athletic season for an all-new episode. Until then, I'm Adam Schick. Thank you so much for tuning in to Gator Tales. Gator Tales.